younger, normally go to children's church downstairs. That's available for you at this time. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. Just put your finger in there for a moment. As I mentioned to you over the time that Herb has been preaching and then our missions conference last weekend, when I came back in February, I wanted to talk about the state of the church. And I not only want to consider just the state of this church, but it's been on my mind just considering the church, particularly in the United States. I don't want to get any larger than that because the church in other countries is faring differently. The church in some countries is in revival. The church in some countries is very deep because of persecution. The church in other countries is uh, flourishing or languishing for one reason or another, and the church in the United States has its peculiar issues, not least of which has been um, unprecedented materialistic opportunities over the last century or so that has resulted in a nation that has never known the standard of living that we have experienced and which has impacted the church in its own unique ways. Also, the church in the United States is a church similarly composed of the history and culture of this country, which has largely been, from the beginning, immigrants seeking a new life and new opportunities who independently have forged for themselves uh, a way of living and and hammered out their opportunities on their own. And we, as Americans in the United States, have a largely very independent um, mindset that fits well with democracy. And uh, we all want to do our thing our way and have our say, and that's kind of who we are as a people. The church in many other cultures is much more uh, family-oriented, much more perhaps tribally-oriented or community-oriented because their cultures are like that. And sometimes we have to sort out in the Scriptures what is merely culture and what is biblically correct. Because all cultures reflect a little bit of the glory of God, just as all people do. They also reflect sin and have their own unique sins, just as people do. And we need to kind of take a critical look at who we are and evaluate that. I also narrow my perspective when I talk about the United States. I want to narrow my perspective to the evangelical church. We could talk about the church in much broader terms, but I want to think about those congregations, those denominations and assemblies that consider themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Scriptures, believing the Bible to be the Word of God and salvation to come through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That group of people that see Him as the Savior, the Son of God, and identify Him that way, and have put their faith in Him for salvation. 
there's a trend in the church that uh, to me is is troubling, but it also uh, it not only affects the nationwide church that I'm speaking about, but it affects local churches here in McHenry, and also our own to a certain extent. And that is the trend that I see of young adults, and when I use that word, I'm going to talk about people between the age of, say, 18 and 35, that young adults largely are leaving the church in droves. Many of them, when they graduate from high school and kind of stop being under their parents' authority and roof, so to speak, leave the church never to come back. They were never personally moved by the church as they grew up in it. They weren't challenged in some way or another. It didn't catch with them, and they simply came out of obligation. And if not before, certainly by the time they leave home to go on to other things, they leave the church as well behind. But there are also uh, two other groups of people, a smaller percentage and a larger percentage, that are manifesting this this change in two very dissimilar ways. There's a there's an amazing percentage of young adults who are wanting to get away from sort of an easygoing, laissez-faire kind of Christianity, and they're actually moving toward highly liturgical churches. They want a specific order and form of worship. They want um, certain kinds of icons that help them think of God in formal ways. They want to move into the mystery of the awesomeness of a sovereign God away from the buddy-buddy familiarity that they have perhaps experienced in the evangelical church at large. And they're actually, uh, across college campuses, There are young people who have grown up in the Christian community, not in the traditional high church community, that are now seeking out membership in very liturgical churches. They want structure and order and mystery and uh, a sense of awe to return to their worship as they see a transcendent God. But there are many more comprising another group that are moving away from the church because they've largely given up on it. George Barna wrote about this group of young adults in his book, Revolution. And he was speaking about the the trend to just simply cast off the organized church because it no longer has relevance or meaning and to rather cultivate a a personal life with God that you gather with a few close friends and talk about over coffee or a round of golf. And that gathering of two or three people that get together and share Jesus in their lives and pray for each other and then um, perhaps give their money to some practical cause like digging wells in a third world country or providing uh, food or something like that for some underprivileged 
group of people, that assuages their need to contribute. And they're leaving the organized church because they see it as largely stuck on itself, largely ingrown, funding its own programs, propagating its own kind of self, and they've rejected it as being just a lot of hype. And they want authenticity that is being defined as little groups getting together, uh, no pastor, no elders, no deacons, just no buildings, no budgets, just let us get together and talk about Jesus with our three or four close friends, and uh, we'll give to some meaningful cause, and this is, this is Christianity today. Part of the problem that I have when I look at that group that has rejected the organized church is that they have so many legitimate complaints. You know, I wish I could look at them and say, you know what, you're wrong. <laughs> the church is a valuable institution. But the reality is they have very many legitimate complaints. We're way too stuck on buildings. We're way too focused on budgets. We're way too involved in programs. We're all, speaking collectively of the whole, we're all too much about church growth meaning make my church bigger and better and richer, and we're not nearly so much about reaching a lost humanity and connecting with the real felt needs of people and ministering Jesus to them in practical ways. And unfortunately, a lot of the criticism is true that we go through mindlessly the organization of the church, and it doesn't have a lot of relevance or connection. But by the same token, I want to appeal to you this morning, as I share some from the Word of God, I want to appeal to you that the solution is not to leave the church. The solution is to change the church. Through prayer, and through committed love relationship with the local body of Christ to pray it into revival and renewal. Because in a very specific way, it is the church that Jesus gave his life for. Now, every one of us comes into the church one by one through a personal confrontation of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin convincing us of Jesus and leading us to faith, we're born again individually. But the moment that new birth occurs, the Apostle Paul says, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And we become a part of the church. And when Jesus comes back to this world, yes, there's a sense in which he will come for you and me, but he is coming for his bride the church for whom he died. So in John chapter 13, I want to begin with a passage where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and this is in that same evening as he's talking with them. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give you. And by the way, I hope you picked up a study guide today, and if you didn't, I hope you get one before you leave, because 
whether you're in a small group or not, there are some questions in here that are well worth your time to ponder prayerfully. There's also a list on the back. Herb made this up a year or so ago, and it's a great list of the one another passages in the Scripture. And uh, you'll get a lot of benefit from that. So if you didn't get one of those, be sure you get it. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's very interesting that Jesus says at least 4,000, if not more years after Adam, a new commandment that you love. And you stop and think to yourself, well, wait a minute. Wasn't that what God was after all along? I mean, wasn't that the message? Well, in a sense, but it didn't come across that way. In fact, under the old covenant, the message was expressed in negative terms. It was expressed in the things you must not do. It was expressed in ways that reflected love for a neighbor, but actually were expressed in terms of prohibitions. You don't lie, you don't steal, etc. These are the things you don't do if you love each other. But love was not the focus of the Old Covenant. The holiness and the moral character of God was the focus And the emphasis was on the prohibitions. And by the time people were well enmeshed in that kind of religious system, instead of finding out what kind of sinners there were, which is really what God intended them to discover, uh, they became self-righteous. And the, the more religion they got, the more obnoxious they became. To the point that by the time of Jesus, when there were the Sadducees and Pharisees, he said, you are the ones that searched the world over to make a single convert. When you finally find him, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. By the way, a lot of the criticism that Jesus leveled at the religious leaders of his day could equally be leveled at the church today. We don't need to be too smug in our assessment of them. And yet he said to his disciples, I'm going to give you a new commandment, and this is it, that you love each other the way that I have loved you. And when you do that, the world will know that you're my disciples. Now, some things immediately stand out to me about this. The first is, it is a new commandment. This is is like a new thing. I'm going to give you a new way. I want you to love each other. I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. Think about how Jesus loved them. Think about the tenderness that he appealed to them. How he uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law. How he washed their feet. How he cared for them in the storm and the sea. How he lovingly taught them and trained them and met them and prayed with them and modeled for them. And the life that he lived in sacrifice, ultimately giving his life for them, he says, I want you to love each other this way, the way I've loved you. And when you do that, it will be the unmistakable mark 
that you are a Christian, that you belong to me, the world will see your love and know that you're my disciples. And that's because this is a love that cannot be counterfeited by Satan. You can build a church after the model of IBM. You can build a fellowship or a club after the model of Kiwanis or Rotary or something else. You can do a lot of things on your own, organizationally and structurally, but you cannot model genuine love for one another in a family of people that you didn't have any say-so about how they came together. You can't model that kind of love unless you have the Spirit of God. One of the reasons that God has put us together in a church is to teach us how to love the way He loves. You know, if you get together with three or four people that you really like, almost anyone can find three or four people they can get along with. You know, you can... You can pick two or three people that are like you. They have similar jobs, similar incomes. They're members of the country club. You can go have a round of golf together as a foursome and talk about Jesus uh, between holes, you know. And uh, almost anybody can pull that off. But when you start putting people together in a group that have dissimilar backgrounds dissimilar educational development, they have vastly different socioeconomic levels, they come from different races and even different languages and and different cultures, and they have vast differences in personality, not people that you would necessarily go up to and say, I'd like to be your friend. But God puts you together in a family called the church. And then he says, I want you to love each other the way I've loved you. You who have the Ph.D. and you who didn't finish high school. You that make the 160000 a year and you that are just barely squeaking by on a minimum wage job. I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. I want you to come together. I want you to care for each other. I want you to value each other. I've been doing the Daily Bible again this year. You know, the one that a few years ago we purchased copies of and encouraged you to to buy and use that to read through the Bible in a year. I hope you still have yours around somewhere and you're using it from time to time. That may not be the method every year, but I'm doing it again this year. And the other morning I was reading in Exodus and there was an offering, a redemption offering that everyone had to to give, which was a half shekel. And uh, it was kind of like what eventually I think became the temple tax. But every person had to bring the half shekel offering once a year to redeem themselves. That was the price of their redemption. And here's what the Scripture says. If you are poor, you must give no less. If you are rich, you cannot give any more. I found that very fascinating. Because God was saying, 
When it comes to your life, you all have equal value. I will not let you treat yourself as worthless, and I will not let you come and redeem yourself with a thousand shekels, because you are worth no more and no less than any other person in this community. I value you equally. Your life is precious to me. And that goes for the child, even the ones unborn. And it goes for the elderly and the infirm and people of all socioeconomic background in the body of Jesus. They have the same value. That was what God was saying to the nation of Israel in that text. You have the same value. And he values us. And he puts us together in a family called the church. And he tells us, I want you to love each other the way I've loved you. In practical ways. You know, it's easy for some people to throw money in an offering plate. And give to some cause around the world. Or send a check to some ministry. But it's very difficult for them to come to a fellowship and give themselves their time and their energy in serving another person in that fellowship and and loving people that they would never choose to be their friends, but that God has put together in the body. This is a new commandment I give you, that you love each other. And when we love each other like this, when we are committed to one another as a family, when we have that kind of bond of unity, the Scripture says, the world will look at us and know that we're His disciples. Because it's not natural. It's supernatural. And indeed, that's what happened in the New Testament church. As soon as they began to develop, what did people say? They marveled at how they loved each other. They were amazed at how they loved each other. That was something that startled the observers. Secondly, I'd like you to look with me in Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. The first seven verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice what Paul says right in the middle of this passage. He says that you are diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We have the unity of the Spirit when we start out. The moment that you're born again, the Holy Spirit 
comes into your life. He's the one that causes the new birth. And the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are baptized by that spirit into the body of Christ. That occurs automatically. We are made one with Jesus and with each other through the spirit that causes us to have new life. We celebrate that when we celebrate communion. We recognize that we are partakers of Jesus Christ and members of one another. We are one in Him. However, being human beings, it is our nature, once we start getting together, to eventually rub each other the wrong way. And if we're not careful over time, that unity that we have been given through forgiveness is lost. And Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We have a responsibility to work hard at being one, at being in unity. You know, when you look at the church, and I appreciate this about my fellow pastors in this area because I'm pretty much convinced that we're all on the same page with this thinking, that there is only one church in McHenry. In the New Testament, there was only one church in every town. Now, it doesn't mean that they all met together. In fact, it's quite apparent in some cases that that church, particularly in Rome, as we just finished studying that letter, that they met in different homes around the city. But there was just one church in Rome. There, there was not the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterians and the Assembly of God and the CNMA and all of those others. There was just one church. And the reason that we have denominations today is largely because we've never been able to get along. We eventually started fussing and feuding, and and ultimately it led to all these divisions. And I'm sure there were differences in theology in those early days. I'm not suggesting here this morning that you water everything down to the point that no one believes anything. But if you focus on the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and you start with the Word of God, which you believe to be inerrant and true, that's why I'm talking about the evangelical church, even though that's not even true of evangelicals anymore, but let's assume this for the sake of argument. That you begin with a Bible that you believe is the inspired Word of God and Jesus, whom you believe and affirm to be born of a virgin, the very eternal Son of God, come to this earth in human form, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, shed His blood to cleanse us, was buried, rose bodily out of that grave, ascended bodily into heaven, and is going to return in that same body one day for His bride, the church. And we are born again through faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. If we agree on that, friends, there's no reason why we should divide over any other thing. You may be a Calvinist, you may be an Arminian, you may be a Wesleyan, you may be a Charismatic, you may be a Lutheran. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what your background is, but there's no reason to divide when you have those 
fundamental bottom line convictions about the truth of the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ in the way of salvation. That is what bonds us together. And I'm not so much of an idealist today that I want everybody to run out and merge all their churches again. It's just, that's just practically speaking not going to happen until Jesus comes and, and makes it one. But I tell you, friends, we are commanded in Scripture to make sure that we preserve unity. And unity does not mean that we always agree with each other. But it does mean at times that we agree to disagree because we love each other. And because we're committed to each other. And because we're going to stick together, no matter what, as long as God allows us to be in this place. That we have a commitment to be in unity. And to care for each other in that way. And that we're going to work hard at settling differences and solving problems. Because we care about each other at a deep level. In some ways of speaking, that's one of the things that attracted me to the Christian Missionary Alliance. And really it's one of our distinctives. When I sit on the licensing and ordaining committee at the district office and we interview candidates, we interview people who are Calvinists right down the line. And our next interview may be with somebody who graduated from Asbury and is a Wesleyan and total Arminian. We may agree with people uh, or we may interview people who believe Jesus is going to come and rapture the church before the tribulation. Some who think he's going to come in the middle, some who think he's going to come at the end. We may interview people that have charismatic Pentecostal roots, and we may interview people that came out of the Anglican church. But they all, if they pass the test, they testify to their love of Jesus Christ, their commitment to the Word of God, their desire to see the world one with the gospel message because there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And they're committed to that and they're willing to go and proclaim that message and agree that we can disagree on these other things and still be one family committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. But you know, people, when they divide in church, they typically don't do it over doctrine. In fact, some surveys that have been done repeatedly over the years of what causes church divisions, they say that fewer than 10% of the time does it have anything to do with theology. It's more likely to do with, I don't like the way they're running Awana down there. I don't like the way that leadership board is working. I don't like the color they painted that nursery. I don't like the children's workers. I don't like the the small group ministry. I don't like the pressure they put on us at that church to do certain things. People divide over those kinds of things. Or they get into a personal conflict and, and they can't resolve it. And so they just quit coming because they don't want to see each other anymore. But friends, we're in a body. 
we're in a family. That Jesus Christ, by His blood, has paid to put us in. We're going to spend eternity together. You know, if you have trouble with folks now, you're going to be with them forever. And you may be surprised at what does not get changed in the resurrection. But the point is that we are called to preserve unity. We're called to go the extra mile. We're called to love each other with a commitment that says, I may disagree with you, but we're walking this road together. And I'm going to love you and pray for you and encourage you and help you and nurture you, and I'm going to count on you to do that for me because we have made a commitment to Christ, which also makes us committed to one another. Nothing grieves God more than when God's people are not getting along. Nothing grieves the Spirit more. Nothing stops the work faster. The work of the Spirit. Oh, the church can go on, but the work of the Spirit is grieved when brothers and sisters in Christ are at odds with each other. And I'm not preaching this this morning because that's the case with us. I'm just reminding us how important it is to preserve the unity of the Spirit, to work hard at it, to to know the, the truth that love covers a multitude of sin. He didn't say idiosyncrasies. He said sin. Love covers a multitude of people that really do bad things, dumb things, sinful things. But we're all on a growth curve. We're all growing up in Jesus. And love covers that and allows room for growth. In the family of God. We've got to create that room for people. And then, finally, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, beginning in verse 19, Hebrews 10:19, Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And look at these verses. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. When revival came to Lima, Peru, for over two years, Just think about this. Plug this into your daily calendar for a moment. 
For over two years, the church met every single night. From the time people got off work till 9 or 10 or 11 o'clock, every single night. And in that two-year period, whenever there was a night that someone did not come to faith in Christ, they prayed through the night, weeping and crying out to God that the Spirit would not leave them. And they met every night. For more than two years. What would, what would happen this morning if I told you that we have a new agenda? Our schedule for 2009 is we're going to meet, we're going to have church every night from 6 to 10 and Sunday for about eight hours. How many of you would be looking for a new church home? <laughs> Angela? <laughs> You'd love it. And the rest of you aren't being honest. (laughs) Think about it. Now, what's the secret there? Okay? Because if I, if I told you, if I told you that, many of you would say, Paul has lost it. We've got to get him help, but until we do, we're going somewhere else. The reason that you would react that way is because the Holy Spirit of God fell on that group. And when God's Spirit comes in power like that, friends, everything else takes a back seat. But you know what? I didn't hear of, I didn't hear of families suffering. I didn't hear of homes coming apart. I saw churches growing and multiplying, new congregations being established, thousands of people saved. Today, there are strong churches in Lima, Peru that came out of that revival in the 70s. In the early church, when Pentecost occurred, they broke bread from house to house throughout the week, and they met on Sundays to worship the first day of the week and celebrate the resurrection. I'm not suggesting that we start meeting every night of the week. When God's Spirit comes, it won't need to be suggested. If revival comes to the church, it just happens. People want to be where God is in power. You don't have to even put it in the newspaper. You don't have to say we're having a revival. People know you're having a revival when the God's Spirit revives the church. But I do want to point out in the book of Hebrews that long after Pentecost, reality of life had set in for these Jewish believers. And it was being costly to be a Christian. Their, their unconverted Jewish family and friends had rejected them. The Roman government had finally realized Christianity was a new and up-and-coming thing and not a part of Judaism which was protected by law. And so Christians were now treated as idolater, or, or actually as, as atheists and godless ones, Because in Rome's eye, they didn't have a god. They had no temple and they had no idols. Well, who are you worshiping? And the the rumor even got out that when they had the Lord's Supper, they they were cannibals because they were eating flesh and blood. They just totally misunderstood the communion. And these people were paying a price. They, they had lost their businesses, some of them. They were struggling economically. They had been uh, disowned by family members. Their shops were not being visited by customers anymore. 
they were in a bad way. And the writer of Hebrews is saying when times get tough, it is the natural human tendency to withdraw and, and to pull away from the fellowship. But what we need to do is just the opposite. We need to force ourselves to come together even more. We need to pray for one another. We need to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You see what's happening here? It's the natural tendency when you're threatened to want to protect what's yours, to hunker down, cover up, put your arms around what you've got left and hold on. I'm not giving, I'm not going, I'm not, because I'm concerned about myself. And the writer of Hebrews is saying you need to get together all the more and stimulate each other, encourage each other to reach out, to continue to be open-hearted and sharing and giving and, and loving each other and doing good works. Because you need that. That's what will keep you faithful and true to Jesus Christ through the tough times. And come and weep with your brothers and sisters if you need to. Come and tell them what's on your heart. Come and share your burdens. Pray for each other. Don't withdraw and hibernate. You need each other all the more. We live in a time that's getting tough economically. People are struggling. People are suffering. Are we praying for each other? Are we coming together to encourage one another? Are we stimulating each other to love and good deeds and following Jesus Christ? Are you trying to lift each other up? Many, many people today, perhaps not in this church, perhaps in this church, but many people today want to come on Sunday morning, check out the sermon, listen to a few songs, and that's church. That is not church. That's just the organized worship. Church is the family that comes together, that prays, that sticks with each other, that sees each other through difficult times, that fixes meals when the, for somebody else when their family's sick and has the flu, that gives a ride to someone whose car's broken down. It goes to help somebody fix something that's broken in their home. That prays for each other on the phone. Church is that community of saints. That the writer of Hebrews says, the tougher the times get and the closer Jesus gets to His return, the more often you ought to meet. The more frequently you should come together. Because you need each other. To stay true to the calling. You have to have that. Friends, there are many problems in the organized church. One of the things, every time we go to plan something, I, you know, you can ask anyone on staff here at the church, what, what, is, what is the question I'm always asking? Can we expect people to give up three Saturdays in a row? Can we expect people to do this two weekends next to, next to each other? Can, can we, is this worth the time to say you should come out on a Sunday afternoon and spend time doing this thing? 
Maybe we need to reevaluate some of our own programs. Maybe we need to assess how we're investing our time. I'm not suggesting for a heartbeat that we've got it all figured out. There's a lot that could be changed. There's a lot that we need to think through. When I, when I talk to you this morning and stand up here and talk about committing your time to each other, I, I'm not necessarily saying we need to make our programs better. We may need to make some programs go away. I don't know. But I do know that God has put us in a body. A body that needs to be selflessly committed to each other. That needs to be devoted to one another in prayer and love. That needs to help each other in practical ways. That needs to see and think as soon as trouble comes my way or the blessing comes that I just have to share that my church is the first thing I think of. This is the place to share the joys or to bring the sadness. And they will rejoice with me or they will comfort me. But this is my family. I'm committed here. Inside this study guide, Herb reprinted a little bulletin box for us, a little gray box, that actually uh, came out of a leaders meeting about four or five years ago and appears in our equip seminars. If you've been to an equip seminar, you've seen this. What are the minimum ways of growing? What do we expect of everyone that's reasonable to expect of growing in Christ? Participation in weekly public worship. Participation in corporate prayer. You know, we pray in our small groups for each other. Our small group prays for one another. We probably spend half an hour in our small group, maybe longer, sharing our needs and praying for each other. But when does the church pray for McHenry? When does the church pray for the outreach and the salvation of souls? When does the church pray for revival? When does the church pray for mission? When do we do that? When do we come and say, God, what do you want this congregation to do in this town? When do we ask those questions? We need corporate prayer. We need regular participation in small groups where there's accountability and prayer for one another, encouragement, Bible study. We need participation as a worker in a ministry in the church with our gifts that God has given us. We need the building up of the body of Christ by serving and by giving in every way. We are a family. We're called to be together. And if there are problems, then we need to prayerfully fix the problems. We need to talk about the things that are frustrating and meaningless and just tradition for tradition's sake. And we need to be willing to change those things, whatever it takes. You know, I don't have, I, I will tell you very honestly, I hope this doesn't scare you. <laughs> I don't have to have you, you sitting in three nice ranks of ordered chairs on a Sunday morning. There's a church in this district that has a bunch of round tables, and they all sit and sip their coffee with their Bibles and notebooks while the pastor preaches. I'm fine with that. 
We don't even have to have chairs or tables. You can sit on the floor if you want to. I don't care. It makes no difference to me the order of the form. We can start out with with uh, praise music. I'm not stuck on hymns. I'm not stuck on praise music. I'm not stuck on any music. I just want Jesus to be glorified. I don't care how we go. That's not the point. But who we are in Jesus Christ is vital. And that we come together. That we pray for one another. That we encourage. That we love each other. That we stick together and preserve the unity of the Spirit. That we must do. It's not the form it takes. But it's the life of Jesus in His body that we must be devoted to. Jesus died for the church. And I want to encourage you this morning. Be a part of the church. And if you don't like what's going on and we're all in agreement that, yeah, it's this, this thing is killing us, then let's fix it. But let's be the church and model the love that Christ has called us to model in this community. Father, I pray that you would make us open to your spirit. I pray that you would give us the courage to change where we need to change. I pray that you would give us the grace to not change what needs to remain. I pray, Lord, that you would give us love for each other and commitment to one another and that we would find delightfully your life and presence within your body, that we would grow up with one another in all aspects unto Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask for your ministry to us. Make us open to your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.